If you've not met me, my name is Stuart. I'm the leader of the church here, and I want to offer you a very warm welcome, particularly if you're a guest here. If you're first time here, I hope you have a fantastic morning with us. I'd love to say hi to you at the end, so please come and introduce yourself. It'd be nice to just uh, have a chat and see how you got on this morning. Um, Strange things happen as being leaders, a leader of a church. I've noticed over the years doing it, and something happened today. I mean, sorry, yesterday on Saturday that was a little unusual for us. We were at home, just kind of carrying on normal Saturday, and Mel then nudged me at one point, and she showed me her phone, and someone had sent us um, an image of some handiwork they'd been up to. So, can we put that up on the on the um, the thing, the next one? Now, this appeared. On our phone, it says we were, some of, some of our life group, not our life group, one of our life groups had got together and they decided to recreate us in Lego. And this is literally, this is what happened. So this guy on the left, apparently that's me. I can't see the likeness. So you have my wife, Melanie, there. And then on the other side, you have our two worship leaders. You have Phil and her husband, Matt, there. And they said, this is what we spent the afternoon doing, building real life church in Lego. And then they, sent, they obviously spent a lot of time and energy on it. And also, if you notice, well, who's at the top? Can you see God up there, just looking down? I mean, they really went into detail. Right up here, we have our Lord and Savior just watching down over us. So they, yeah, they really did spend a lot of time about this. That's what people in our church do on their days off. So they, they obviously had fun with Lego. Um, and actually, there are photos of our wider leadership team that they've all done floating around somewhere. So if you know who did it, go and ask them. And there are more of all of us here being recreated in Lego. But this came as an interesting time because we were playing the Lego at the home with the boys. It's one of the things that they love to do. I don't know if you've got kids and all you've played with Lego over the years. It's one of these kind of ubiquitous toys. It's everywhere. And we play with Lego in our house. But when we play with Lego, we have a few rules. I don't know if you have rules with your Lego. One of your, my number one rules in Lego is that it cannot go outside. It cannot leave the house. Because I'm one of these people who's a touch on the OCD side. And if we start losing pieces, then we can't build some of the models that we've got. We can't build. And one of my children has inherited this. Um, so we have to build every model exactly as per the instructions. My other my kids is a little bit more freestyle and wants to build anything. But we have a very strong rule in our house that you cannot take Lego outside. And it's been a battle for us over the years because the boys make all these wonderful creations and they want to go outside and play with them. And I'm like, no. It doesn't leave the house. That's the kind of thing. And I'm just, sometimes I have to frisk them before they go outside. Do you have any Lego? Because it goes in the garden, it goes in the car, it goes out, it comes to church. It's just, we're going to lose it. And if we can't have it, then it won't get built. So that's one of our rules in the house when we play with Lego. Another one of my rules in the house is Lego is it can't get everywhere. Do you have Lego? Do you notice it spreads? The more you play, like a virus, it just keeps going. We have a kind of an area in the house where that's the Lego area. And I want to be able to walk from my kitchen to my lounge without walking on Lego because it's spread. Now, scientists have done research. You know, walking on a piece of Lego in socks, it's as painful as childbirth, they tell me. (laughs) Scientists, apparently, don't blame me. I read it on the internet. It's definitely true. But apparently, if you walk on bits of Lego, that pain, that shooting pain, is right up there with one of the most excruciating things you can feel. Just, just, I read it somewhere. It was, must be true. So that's what they said. So I've got this rule. is like, you cannot let the Lego spread. So I cannot, with my cup of tea, walk between my kitchen and my lounge without having to dance 
between all your bits of Lego. And it's this ongoing battle I have with the kids. Just keep it to this area. I love it. You play with it, but you play with it there. If I don't know. And so for me, it's something I've gone to war with with my kids on. It's like, these are the rules when we play with Lego. You've got to abide by these rules. And I have these things, these battles with children. Have you ever had children? Have you ever got things where you battle with them? Another one of the areas where I battle with my kids, sorry to say, is toileting. My life has been reduced to arguing with two smaller versions of myself about how to use the toilet. It's just, it's just one of those things. I have two small boys, and I don't know how hard it is to flush the toilet and wash your hands is, but it seems to be something that, despite being eight and six, they are both vehemently opposed to in every way, shape, or form. My children, when they go into the toilets now, we even tell them, flush the chain, wash your hands. What do you think happens? Nothing. It's just like, it's like it bounces off and they come out the other side. And so when you go in the toilet, you're greeted by something and you're like, oh, come on. And so I summon them and I'm like, whose is this? And they look and they look like this. They look. It's not mine. How they can tell. It's not mine. It's definitely not mine. What? It's mine? It's mummy's? No. And I said, so we have to go with this. So now we're yelling at them and they come out and they try it. Sometimes they run and run out so quickly and they're like, I did wash my hands. There's no, there's no way you could have washed your hands. So we've been fighting this one for years and we will continue to do it because we think it's important. So we've gone to war on it. You need to learn how to use a toilet. I'm also egging for putting the, the lid down as well, but that might be a bridge too far. Um, with small boys, but that's what I'm after. But that's something I'm willing to go to war for in my house. So Lego and the toilet are two battlegrounds that I have with my kids, and I've just, there's no quarter, there's no mercy. We fight over these things, and they will bend to my will if it's the last thing they do. Um, it will happen. But that's what we do. And what we're going to look at today is a little bit more of going to war. We've been studying the book of Philippians, if you've been following along. We've done a whole bunch of series on that. And we've been looking at this theme of joy that runs through the book of Philippians. And we've seen joy in many areas. And today we're going to look at joy in conflict. Joy in conflict. We've seen the key to joy being Jesus. We've seen joy in loneliness, joy in suffering, joy in death, joy in humility, joy in temptation. And today it's joy in conflict. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi and he is going to war over something. There's something that's come up at this point in the letter which has got him passionate, angry about, vehemently kind of involved in that he is not going to let this go and he is basically picking a fight and so we see him now so if you've got your bible go to philippians chapter 3 and we're going to read from verse 1 and we're going to see him get angry about something and then explain kind of the remedy the answer to it so we're going to put it up on the screen behind i'll read it along if you don't have your bible with you it says finally my brothers rejoice in the lord To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Here we go. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have every reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, we're going to look at three things today, three pairs of things. We're going to look at anger and joy, profit and loss, and then life and death, and then I'll finish it up with some application for us all. First part, anger and joy. Paul starts this uh, section with joy. It's come up through the letter. One of the challenges when you read the book of Philippians is to find the amount of times Paul mentions joy or rejoicing. This theme that runs through it comes up multiple times uh, in the letter. And here we have it again. And he says, finally, he's kind of coming into land. We're almost at the end of this series, beginning of chapter 3 here. We've only got one more chapter to go. And we will land the plane. He's saying, finally, kind of summing up. But his point is, rejoice in the Lord. That's his key. And he's talking to his brothers. He said, that's family language. The brothers and sisters of the church in Philippi who know him, who he knows, who he loves. They love him. They've been helping out when he's been in prison in Rome. And he says, finally, this is what I need to talk to you about. You need to rejoice in the Lord. I've been mentioning it all the way through, all the temptations, all the trials, all the difficulties you go through, all the problems you're facing. We rejoice in God and we put our trust and faith in him. He's the one that we look to. He is the one who is the key to joy. His life, his death, his resurrection, that is our hope. That is where it's found. That gives us that deep sense of joy, which means we can face anything, not surface happiness, that the world pursues, but a deep sense of abiding joy, that we know that we have an eternity that is secure in Him, that we know where the direction of our life is going. We know that we've been forgiven and we've been adopted into a family. This is where we get our joy. And then he goes on to say, it's no bother to share this again. He's going to repeat some stuff he's already said because it's important for you. It's for your safety, he says. I need to tell you this to help you keep going as followers of Jesus. That's what I'm going to tell you. And then he wades in and he just suddenly changed the tone. After rejoicing, he gets angry and he says, look out for, be on the watch, be alert, be focused, be be looking around. Don't have your head down that you're not aware of what's going on. Be mindful of this. Have this right in front of you. This is an important thing I'm going to tell you. And he says, look out for... He's saying, danger, 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 warning. He says, first of all, he says, look out for dogs. Now, dogs at that time were scavengers. They were filthy creatures. They were a far cry from our pampered children replacements that we have in the 21st century. It's not like those dogs that get carried around with collars and roughs and kind of live like kings in our homes. No, no. These were scavengers who lived on the outskirts of society in the Greco-Roman world. They were basically considered kind of filthy. Um, the Jewish, Jews considered them unclean. They were just, they weren't nice. They were on the outskirts. And he says, look out for them. And he calls them dogs. Even in our modern day and age, to call someone a dog isn't pleasant. It's not a nice thing to do. But actually, back then, to call someone dog was really strong language, what he's saying. These guys, he says, are dogs. Then he goes on to say, no, they're evildoers as well. So this is the opposite of good. They don't do good stuff. They do evil. 
He says these are the people, they're not seeking good, they're not seeking God's way, they're not seeking God's righteousness, they're seeking something opposite to that, alternative to that. So these are filthy people, they do evil, and the last one there, he lands in, he says they mutilate the flesh. They mutilate the flesh, again, strong language. And what Paul's driving at here, he's going after this group of people who would say that if you became a Christian, you had to be circumcised. If you're a man and you had to become a Christian, you had to be circumcised. So what was this about? Well, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. We have to go right back to the beginning of our Bible, book of Genesis, chapter 17. And we find God coming to Moses. And God has already picked Moses out. Moses, sorry, did I say Moses? I meant Abraham. Get that right. Moses wasn't born in Genesis chapter 17. Chapter 17, Abraham. Got carried away there. Abraham, he'd already come to Abraham. Abraham responded in faith. He'd pulled him out of where he was living in this pagan culture. He says, you're going to follow me and you're going to have many descendants. A few chapters later, he says, we're going to, as a sign of the covenant we have made together, you need to be circumcised and so do all the males of your household. If I was one of the men in my, his household, I would have said, go back and ask again. You know, are you really sure about that? Did you hear God? But that's what happened. And so since then, all the males, the Jews, have been circumcised. But then we get to the New Testament. We go through the book of Acts and the, bio, uh, the Spirit is poured out on the church and the church grows after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And it grows and multiplies in Jerusalem, on and on and on. And then the, the Spirit then pushes the church out of Jerusalem and it starts going out into the Gentile world. And we suddenly have non-Jews becoming Christians. And we suddenly have a crisis point in the church where it's like, what are we going to do when the non-Jews become Christians? Because we're the Jews, we've been waiting for a Messiah. We've been expecting him. Jesus has come. We now know who he is. We responded in faith. That's great. But there are these people over here who have not had the law. They haven't had the covenants. They've been outside of it. But now they're being brought in by faith. What do we do with them? Do we make them follow the law that we followed or not. And there was this big council. And in Acts 15, they have this council. And Paul was there. Barnabas, another one of the other early apostles, also some of the disciples who were still alive at the time. They were there. And they decided that believers who were Gentiles did not have to come under the law of Moses. That's why I said Moses, circumcision mode. That's where it came from. He said, no, you don't have to do that. They're actually free from that. They, they've responded in faith. They don't need to comply with this extra bit, this external law. It's not for them. And so this battle in the church was then dealt with. We've dealt with that. We know what to do. We don't have to. They don't have to. We can have Jews who are Christian, Gentiles are Christian. It's fine. And they don't have to be circumcised. But there were those who carried on preaching this message. They're saying, actually, it's not good enough that you have faith in Christ. You need to do something extra as well. If you want to be a proper follower of Jesus, you don't just respond and repent of your sins and put your faith and trust him. You've got to do more, which is what Paul was getting angry about. How dare anybody add to the gospel? How dare anybody add an extra burden on what it means to follow Jesus? How dare anybody add to the finished work of Christ on the cross? Jesus' death, resurrection, that's not enough. You've now got to go through this physical act as well to be acceptable to God. God's righteousness isn't good enough. I need to add my own to it as well. And you can see it being like a red rag to Paul of what he's preached all his ministry. No, faith and trust in Christ is the bedrock of our faith and that's it. 
That's all you need. And so he is getting really angry. And so he starts calling these guys out and saying, these, these people are preaching this false message. We won't want anything to do with it. And then he goes on to explain actually what true circumcision is. He says, actually, it's not, it's not about an act of the flesh. It's not about removal of a piece of flesh. It's actually something more than that. He says, actually, we, the church, are that true circumcision. We have expressed that by faith in Christ. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God. The language he uses there is reminiscent of the language of the Levites who served in the temple in Jerusalem. So these were the the tribe that was picked out by God. We covered this in the book of Joshua. It was picked out by God to minister before his presence. They got no land. They got no inheritance in the promised land. But they would, so their inheritance was God himself. And they served at the tabernacle and later at the temple. And they did the worship and all the running of that. That was their job, to serve in God's presence. And he said, actually, we as the church, as believers, we are that. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of God in us. That's enough. That's, that's an expression of that true circumcision of people who are set apart for God. And he says, then we glory in Christ Jesus. So we have the Spirit of God to worship, but we also glory only in Christ. Not our own actions, our own merits, our own skills, our own righteousness, our own laws that we put on it. We don't have that. We glory only in Christ. And then he finally says, we have no confidence in the flesh. We don't add anything to our salvation. And this is an allusion back to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9 where it says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord. And that's the only thing you get to boast in. Jesus Christ and his finished work. And nothing else added to that makes us right with God. So you can see what Paul was angry about there. What he was going, and what he goes on in the next section, we look at profit and loss. And in the next section, he uses an image from the marketplace. Anyone here involved in accounts or finances, you kind of have your profit and your loss. And you've got to weigh them off against each other. And you hope what you've brought in, what you gain, is greater than what you lose, because then you're making money. If it's the wrong way around, you're losing. And he goes on to explain this. And he says, for these people who are saying you've got to be circumcised, you've got to add to the salvation of God, basically, they've got nothing on me, Paul is saying. My credentials are top-notch. Anyone wants to come on me and say you need to do something to earn God's approval, act a certain way, live a certain way, let me give you my CV, he says. Let me show you what I've done. Let me show you how good I was before God in my own mind. And he lists seven things about himself that would put him right up there as an uber-Christian in the mind of these false teachers. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is a sign of keeping that Abrahamic covenant long before anyone in Philippi. Many, many years, Paul was old by this point. So years ago, decades ago, I had this done. I'm already covered. And he says, of the people of Israel, he was part of God's covenant people by birth. He wasn't bought in. He wasn't a proselyte who was brought in extra. He wasn't a Gentile believer who'd kind of come in late not knowing anything. He was from birth. He was part of the privileged people of God. And not just the privileged people. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I can actually change my lineage to a particular tribe, which is a particular person who was one of the sons of Jacob, where the 12 tribes come from. I was one of them. 
And Benjamin particularly was a favoured son, if we remember from the story of Joseph, which we've looked at. And also Benjamin, the first king of Israel, was from which tribe? Benjamin, King Saul. Who was Paul named after? Saul, (laughs) originally. He's like, I am right in there. I'm from this tribe. I was named after the first king. We're the special tribe. When the kingdom split, ten tribes went one way. Judah and which other tribe stayed together and followed God? Benjamin. Where was Jerusalem? Which territory of which tribe was Jerusalem in? Benjamin. It's like, I, you cannot knock me. I am so... It's like, for our money, it's like if you're a Christian here and you were born in a church on the altar. It's like, you just, I am so Christian, it's not funny. And there was something singing over me and I was born on the altar, on a Bible. It's like that. I am so... It's a graphic image, isn't it? Just saying, I'm hearing this for the first time. That's not in my notes. I'm just saying. All right. Anyway, back to notes. He said, and then he finishes out. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's how they refer to themselves, Hebrews. I am just, I'm the uber Hebrew. I am the mega Hebrew. I am just there. And then he goes on to say, not only that, kind of my birth, my limit, he says, in regard to the law of Pharisees. So he was raised in a tradition of this group called the Pharisees, who were people who took the law very seriously, and they studied it, and they tried to protect it, and they tried to follow it, and that's what he did. He was a mega Pharisee. He was the, one of the best Pharisees. He said he went beyond, read the book of Acts, he went beyond his peers in learning. He studied under the best teachers there were in Judaism. He was a smart man. He'd done his degree and PhD and doctorate. He was that kind of guy. So he knew his stuff in terms of the law. And he says, as for zeal persecuting the church, not only was he so into law, he was zealous in it to the point where he would persecute anyone he thought got in the way. So he wasn't just knowledgeable. I'm active in what I believe. And I persecute people who think different to me, which was, incidentally, the church, which he's now part of. But at the time, that's what he did. So I'm zealous for this. It's not just a mind knowledge. It, it, it comes out in my actions. I'm going after the church. And it's the righteousness under the law. It says blameless. What he means there, he's referring to the pharisaical interpretations of the law concerning eating and drinking and holy days and stuff like that. He followed it all. He was utterly perfect. And the point Paul's making is, says, these false teachers saying you've got to be circumcised, you've got to add to the gospel. He says, they've got not a thing on me. I'm, I'm perfect for them in that kind of thing. They can't add anything to what I've done. I've, I've done it all. Everything about my life to this point has been right, good. I've ticked every box. You can't ask me to do more. You can't add anything. Everything I've got right thus far. But then what does he say in verse 7? But whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Loss. He actually says loss three times in a couple of verses. Loss, loss, loss. I've gained everything. I am the uber, uber Jewish Christian, if you will. I'm just, I've got it all. And he says, I count it all as loss for the sake of Christ. For the sake of knowing it. He even says that, he even adds this um, Indeed, again, I count everything lost. He's emphasizing this point. And when he says everything is lost, he's now actually widening the circle. He's listed, he listed his Jewish credentials, but he's now saying, I count everything lost. So there's now his whole life, his whole ministry, everything he has. He says, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. So he's obviously got Christian credentials now, being an apostle to the Gentiles, having met the risen Christ personally, 
preached, planted churches, done all these things, written our New Testament, written to letters, been looked at as an authority, a father figure in the early churches. I count everything as loss. Everything as loss. And the reason for that is knowing Christ. That is his hope. That is his treasure. That is what he's after. Compared to knowing Christ, everything I've had in this world, everything I've earned, everything I've got is loss. It doesn't count. And it says, knowing Christ as my Lord, the one who rules and reigns, the one who's over everything. And he personalized it with my Lord, not just Jesus is Lord. Over there, he's my Lord. He has impact in my life. He is Lord over my life, every area of my life, my, my hopes, my dreams, my finances, family, friends, churches, everything. He is Lord over it all. He is Lord over it all. And that is where my hope is. And he says, I count it. He then goes on even worse. He says, I count it all, bear in mind everything he said, as rubbish. This is, um, in the old KJV, it's uh, translated as dung. But it's basically a word that means filth, uh, horrible, dirty, rubbish. It's, just, it's not just like some of our nice recycling that we wash and then put in the recycling bin. No, no, it's, it's this horrible, filthy stuff. I, it's revolting, foul-smelling garbage is what he's saying. I count all of this, all that stuff I've listed about being a super Jew and my ministers, everything is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. Some of it's not bad per se, but actually compared to knowing Jesus, I count it all as foul-smelling garbage. He uses some of the strongest language he can there to say, when we trust in our own righteousness, that's what it's like, foul-smelling garbage. And he says, in the end, I've, I've counted all rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I want that to be my focus. I want to be that's where I'm going, that I am known as one who is in Christ and that's Paul's most common term throughout his letters for Christians, that they are in Christ. And that's fundamental. Within that, we have forgiveness and we have hope and we have life and all the things that God offers us through that and we experience in there. But that is where it comes to it. It's not based on human achievement. It's not based on what I've done. It's not based on how I've lived. It's not based on anything that's happened to me. All I want is to be known as someone who is in Christ and I have faith and trust in him. And Paul in one sense has experienced that because he's a Christian, but in another sense he hasn't experienced that because he hasn't fully realized that by knowing Christ on the last day, being resurrected with him. So there is still a now and a not yet dynamic, but that's the focus of his life. That's where he's going. That is his hope. That is what he's after. So for Paul, that's his profit and loss. He says, all these things you think I would profit, I just consider them all lost. They all go in the loss category. The only thing in the gain category, the profit category, is one entry, and it just says, knowing Jesus. Everything else on the other side. Last thing, life and death. Last couple of verses. So he's outlined this. He's got angry about these people who are adding to the Gospels. He's put his own credentials down. I am the super Jewish Christian here. You can't come against me, but do you know what? I count all of that rubbish. None of it matters compared to knowing Christ. And then he finishes with this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. So the last two, life and death. Life and death. It's all about Jesus Christ, his death, and then his subsequent resurrection. Jesus 
We often think about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It's the basis of our faith. But actually, before Jesus rose from the dead, he had to suffer and die on a cross. And we've seen that in the Joy Humility Sermon about um, Jesus taking on the form of a servant and suffering and dying. And he's saying, actually, they come together, these two things. Resurrection only happens when you've died first. You have to have both. It's not a either or, it's both and. And he said, actually, Christ suffered and rose from the dead as a result of that. So me, in turn, I have to suffer and go through that experience as well. I can't live this Christian life and expect to live in everything perfect and everything fine. Actually, I want to know Jesus and I want to know him in his sufferings. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to know what it means to proclaim the gospel. And if you're doing it properly and you're doing it faithfully and boldly, persecutions will come. Jesus himself said that. He said, you're going to have it. You're going to have trouble. They persecuted me. Guess what? They're going to persecute you. That's what's going to happen. And Paul says, I know that. I am going to pursue that. I'm going to pursue this ministry calling even if it means suffering for Jesus, even if it means dying for Jesus. We've already seen that in the letter so far when we looked at joy in death. And Paul knows that through these sufferings he will be shaped into the image of Jesus. He will become like Christ in his death. There is a shaping, a conforming As we walk the Christian life, as we go through pain and sorrow and loss and persecution and ostracism and all those things that happen in our life, this is what happens to them. But there is hope. Even though we share in his suffering, what do we have at the end to look forward to? A resurrection. Just like Christ went through his own sufferings and he died alone, there is an ultimate prize for us as believers, which is the resurrection from the dead. We experience it in part now. As Christians, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible says we've been made alive in Christ. So we have tasted what the age to come will be like in part. But we also know, because we've already looked at this, we will one day die ourselves. That's happening unless Christ returns. And if he doesn't, we're going to die. We're all going to die and have to face it ourselves. But we know beyond that, There is something coming that is even better. There is a day when the dead in Christ will rise and they will see their Lord and Savior face to face and be with him forever. And that is what Paul is looking to. That is what his focus is. That is where I'm going. Whatever happens in this life, whatever the difficulties come, whatever the the sufferings come, and bear in mind he's in Rome at the moment, he's facing the, the chance of execution, and we've even looked at what he's experienced in his life up to this point. He's faced beatings and stonings and shipwreck and all sorts of things. And people have chased him out of town because he preached Jesus. And they followed him to the next town because he starts preaching Jesus there. And they come after him there. He has faced it all. And he says, you know what? I'm still looking forward to the great resurrection from the dead when I get to see my Lord and Savior face to face. We saw in chapter 1, verse 21, kind of Paul's life motto. And what did he say? For me to live is Christ, to die is Gain. It's that word again. Gain, isn't it? I'm looking forward to something bigger, something greater, something better from this. And I won't be put aside from people who want to add to the gospel and want to make it more than it already is for the sake of Christ. All right, let's, ha- let's finish this and we'll have a few questions, diagnostic questions that we can ask ourselves to try and earth some of this teaching. So, 
The question is, what are you willing to go to war for? What are you willing to fight for? What are you willing to be ruthless about? Hopefully Lego and using the toilet properly are on your list somewhere, but there hopefully are other things as well. So here are three questions I want to ask you today. First one, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Because I submit to you today, that is the biggest question you will ever face in your life, ever. Do you know Jesus for yourself? Do you, have you read what he says about himself in the Bible? Because we believe here that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God the Son. He came to earth. He broke into our kind of life, took on flesh as a man. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross in our place for our sin, all the things we'd done to offend God. He took that punishment on himself. He was laid in the grave, dead. He then rose from death victorious. He appeared to his followers. He then ascended into heaven and poured out the Holy Spirit on the church. And ever since then, the church has been proclaiming this message over and over again. Turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Turn away from living your own life. And if you're not a believer in Christ today, if you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, I want to tell you, do it. Do it today. Don't delay. Don't be stubborn and self-centered and hard-hearted. Turn away from yourself and put your faith and trust in him. He's the only one who can give you hope in this life and hope in the next. He's the only one who will not bend and break under the pressures of this world. He's the only one that when the resurrection from the dead happens for all, that you can put your faith and trust in before the great judge. And he's the only one you can find peace and forgiveness in. So if you're not a believer here, turn from your sin. I'd love to pray with you at the end. I'd love to talk to you about what that means. But all I'll do is listen and nod and then say, repent of your sin. Put your faith and trust in Christ. Because I love you, I'm for you, and you need to repent of your sins. So do you know Jesus here today? If you do know Jesus, let's go on to the second question. Where is your hope and trust? Now, just going to put this out there, but I don't think as a church we're in danger of promoting the message of circumcision for all believers. Can I get an amen from the men, please? Okay, just, I just want to put that out there. I don't think that it's a danger for us. But that's just me. However, I think we are just as in danger of trying to add things to the gospel of Jesus, his good news, in the same kind of way. We're just as guilty and susceptible to trying to add to our own righteousness before God. We are all guilty of trying to make ourselves a bit more acceptable to him in what we do and what we say, or what we don't do and what we don't say. We want to add something. We want to say, okay, it's good that we've got Jesus, but if I just add this in, I'll be a little bit better than that person and therefore a little bit more acceptable to God. And we have that same tendency. And so I want to challenge you today, where is your faith and trust? Are you in danger of putting your faith and trust in some things other than Christ, or probably more insidious, Jesus 
and something else. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I put my faith and trust in him. But I've got to make sure I get these other things done to ex- so that he can, I'm acceptable to him. What about, and some of these things, by the way, are good things. We should be doing them. But we shouldn't be doing them to earn God's favor. We do them as a response to his love and grace to us. What about reading our Bible and prayer? We're encouraging you to do this every day. We've been covering it all this year. I started 1 Corinthians this morning. I'll hit the end of the, um, the New Testament by the end of December. I'll have read the entire Bible in a year. I'm way better than anyone else in here, aren't I? Because I've just added that. Anyone else keeping up? Are we tempted to put our spirituality and our personal devotion to say, well, God's got to love me more today because I read my Bible and I prayed. And not only did I read my Bible and read 1 Corinthians, I read a psalm as well. So I am just like, and it's a Sunday as well, so you get double points for that. So I am all over that. What about church attendance? I come here every Sunday. I don't miss church unless I'm dying, but I'm here because that's where God's people are, and I think that's important. And I know some people who don't turn up every week because there's some empty chairs, and we all sit in the same place every week so it's really obvious when you're not here because there's now a gap and you're like well they're not here but I'm here worshiping Jesus what about what about if you want to be uber christian what about the prayer meeting oh oh we know we know we know there are people who like who miss the prayer meeting because they're tired you know they don't come there it's a night off but I go and I pray and I know who's there I know who the proper christians are so obviously God must love me because I bother doing that. What about serving? I'm on one of the teams. I serve. I love my people around me in my life group. I do this for that. I went around and gave someone a meal this week and I prayed with so-and-so over there. God must love me more because I'm doing all these wonderful things. What about giving financially? I give to the church. I give a big portion of my money. It's a, it's a cost for me and my family. It's a sacrifice. I'm way better than some of those who don't give. And I know who they are, even though I don't, but I know, I can tell. I can tell who some of the non-givers are, and I'm way more spiritual than them. What about the way we conduct our relationships and raise our kids? Oh, there's a, there's a third rail, isn't there? Children. I see now some people parent their children. <laughs> I do it properly. We pray and we read our Bible with our kids every day, every night. They are little angels in church. You know, they're monsters at home, but angels in church, everyone knows how well I'm doing. God must accept me because I'm raising my kids well. What about the abstaining of things? I've lived my life sexually pure. I haven't messed up in that area. I haven't got that one wrong. I must be more acceptable. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't take drugs. I don't watch those dodgy films that are on telly that all everyone's talking about because there's some bad stuff in there. And therefore, as a result, I feel like I'm more acceptable to God. Are you tempted to fall into that mindset? Because if you are, that's what is adding to the gospel. That's what it looks like. We put our own righteousness on things that we do as well as or more than the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I share those because I've gone through all of them at various points in my life. And I'm still tempted to go back there because I did read my Bible and pray this morning. And I read an extra psalm. So obviously, (laughs) and it's double points on a Sunday. So I am tempted to do that. But actually, that's not what it's about. It's about Jesus' death and resurrection only. What about the area of comfort and ease? We live in the Western world, 21st century. 
compared to most of the planet, we have a Disneyland life. Everything we have, we can get. Medical care, food, benefits from the government. We have got so much here. We live in relative peace, great prosperity, even with Brexit looming. The worst thing is now you think, well, I won't get a pay rise this year. You know, oh, well, big deal. You know? Are we tempted to think that actually we put our faith and trust in that? What if that got removed? What if that got taken away from us? What we need to do, church, is we need to go to war on some of these things and actually be ruthless about our attitudes and the attitudes of our heart. What are we going to put our faith and trust in? What are we prepared to live in? What are we prepared to give up? Like Paul says, sharing the sufferings of Christ. Because following Christ wholeheartedly means you're going to come against opposition. And some of those things are going to be tested and pushed against. Our comfort, our care, our reputation, promotions at work will be overlooked for because we chose to follow Jesus. Where is your hope and trust? Last question, and we'll finish. Are you rejoicing in the Lord? Is your heart fully set on Jesus' death and resurrection, his finished work? Is your hope fully committed to that? What are you doing to maintain that? Because like anything, you have to keep going to maintain something. If you want to maintain your weight, you have to keep watching what you eat. If you want to maintain a level of fitness, you have to keep training in whatever it is you're doing. If you want to keep your focus on Christ and rejoicing Him, you need to go after it and be active in that. When you face loneliness and death and suffering and persecution, are you able to rejoice in the Lord? Because you've built rhythms and practices in your life that enable that. Some of the things we do in our home just to help us doing that is we often have worship music on. We love to play songs, worship music that remind us of the good news. We love to do it with the kids in the car. We do it at home when we're just around. We've got the new um, the Elevation worship album that we put on the email just saying here's some good songs on here. We sing a couple of them, uh, Unstoppable God and Resurrecting. We've had them going on loops at home. The kids know them now. <laughs> Because we just want to remind ourselves it's all about him. It's not about us. If you haven't got some good music, get some good music. What about reading your Bible? Don't put your faith and trust in it, but you should really do it. Especially on Sunday, double points. But you should do that. What about going back to some Gospels and reading some resurrection accounts? Reading the, the Jesus, what he sacrificed on the cross. Going back there. We've got Advent coming. We did this last year at Mel's suggestion. We both got a, like a book one of those Advent books where you read something a day just to remind us about the incarnation, Christ coming, what that meant, and that was actually leading ultimately towards the cross at Easter. We spent a few, couple of weeks, just that was our daily reading. Read that. Get a book, find them. There's oodles around, written by all sorts of authors and preachers. It would be great to fuel your soul and keep your eyes on Christ, that you are enjoying, rejoicing in him. Do you make a daily pattern to give thanks and praise to God for everything he's done? to remind you that it's all about him. The job you have, the food you eat, the home you live in, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, your family, your kids, everything comes from him. It's not dependent on your skill or your goodness or how great you are. It's all based on Jesus and him alone and his goodness and mercy to you. How are you doing those things? Well, I think it's time to finish and I think we should get practical. So we're going to rejoice in the Lord together now. So can the band come back up? And I'd just love to pray for you guys. And then we're going to finish with some time of worship, singing.
and we will see if God's got anything else for us before we go. So do you want to stand up? Do you want to just close your eyes? And I'm just going to pray for us as a people. I'm just going to start. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill us as your people today? Lord God, we stand here as your people and say, we have nothing but you. Nothing but you, Lord. Everything we have in our life, our background when we became a Christian, how we've lived our life, our hopes, our dreams, our homes, our families, our monies, our futures, our skills, our possessions, God, we lay it all down and we count it as loss compared to knowing you. If you kind of put them in scales, one would tip the other one hugely. Be no contest because knowing you is above all everything. And God, heaven forbid, but if all of those were stripped away from our life, we would still have you and that would be enough. That would be enough, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we were lost and we were enemies of you and we were far from you, we hated you, we rejected you, we stood opposed to you, you came and you saved us. (laughs) You called us to yourself. When we were dead, you raised us up like Lazarus in the grave. You called our name and said, come forth, and we did, Lord. And we thank you and we praise you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you that we've been clothed in your righteousness, not our own. Lord, we thank you that we've been adopted into your family and we have a Father in heaven now who loves us. Thank you that you are continually working on our heart and character, transforming us day by day into the image of your Son. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord Jesus, and I pray, God, where we, you highlight areas of our life, spotlight moments in our lives, where we've been tempted to put our faith and trust in things other than you God I pray you forgive us for that Lord God we are frail and we are fallen and we are tempted so easily sometimes and Lord God I pray God forgive us for that make us clean make us new if there are particular areas you need to highlight in our lives just do it now things where we've been tempted to just add something yeah if I add that I stop doing that that will make me more acceptable and God would you just level us out again and say the only thing we need is your death and resurrection. The, the ground at the foot of the cross, they say, is level. You can't get a leg up anywhere. Everyone stands level. Whether you've been a Christian five minutes or 50 years, we're all level. Whether you read your Bible this morning or didn't, we're all level. Whether you've had a great week or a pretty rubbish week, we're all level before Christ. Lord Jesus, and we want to say we love you. We praise you. And God, as your people, we say we put our trust in you alone, in nothing else. It's only in you. And God, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face and we will have that ultimate gain. (laughs) We've gained you now, but one day we will gain you for eternity. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. God's people said.